from the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman. Welcome to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast. We are ending season two on a high note and bringing you a discussion on the topic of neurodiversity. If you aren't sure what this is, then buckle up because the next 30 minutes, we'll be exploring neurodiversity and its importance of the embracing neurodivergent talent in the workforce. Our guest today is Natalia Lakowski, Global Neurodiversity Advancement Leader and Supply Chain Inventory Transformation Lead at IBM. With over 26 years of experience, Nat brings us a wealth of knowledge and insight into the emergence of a neurodivergent IBM. And welcome to the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you for all the listeners who are dedicating some of your very valuable time to learn about neurodiversity. Excellent. So just to start a little bit on the supply chain front, give us a background about your your career in supply chain, because we're this is a supply chain podcast. Sure. I've been with, I've been blessed to be with IBM since 93. And I joined on our inventory management and remarketing side. And the area was focusing on reverse logistics. And I actually worked on the client side. And uh, I took some, took some time and uh, started my family. And when I came back, I was asked to move to the IT side because I had a lot of client knowledge and I was able to put that knowledge to use into trying to develop some of our IT tools now calling smart workflows. I moved over to global demand planning and inventory, which I kind of like to call games in theory, um, where we can make the most impact. And in 2015, I began working as a volunteer for our neurodiversity at IBM Business Resource Group. And it just evolved, and I'm honored and really blessed to have a dual role at IBM. So you have several years of experience on this. Well, well I'm also neurodivergent, so I have a whole lifetime uh, of experience there as well. Yes, we do exist. We won't ask how many years' experience that is, Nat. Let's just say it's more than, more than 20. So give us a background and a little bit of history around neurodiversity. Absolutely. So the term neurodiversity was first coined in the early 90s by an anthropologist from Australia named Judy Singer. And the term was really to move the idea and concept of neurological differences out of this deficits model and into a social model of strength. But if you think back, you know, in the history of our planet, They've been people who thought a little bit differently since the beginning of time. Back in our first civilizations, they might have been called shaman, where they were a little bit different, but knew how to read signs of the environment and have interesting ideas that came through. So we've always been here. It's one in 20 people are neurodivergent. And so it's one in 20 of your family, your colleagues, your coworkers, and we're here. I was reading as I was studying to be preparing for this, that there were some really amazing names that they mentioned that were neurodivergent. Uh, Bill Gates, Thomas Jefferson, Michelangelo. So to your point, that it's uh, quite an impressive you know, group that, that's called neurodivergent. So Yeah, also Bill Gates and Thomas Edison. So we'll be sitting in the dark without our iPhones. <laughs> <laughs> so Nat, when did the 
corporate focus on recognizing neurodiversity as a potential strategic advantage? When did that first start and and where and where's that kind of where's it at today from a maturity perspective? Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's see. So IBM, we're I think celebrating our hundred and tenth year. So it's part of IBM's rich history and diversity uh, and disability inclusion. Prior to the ADA, IBM was still target hiring people with disabilities. They were one of the first to add race and creed to their early uh, practices, first to hire women. So neurodiversity really is yet another one, another chapter in IBM's diversity story, if we want to think of it, think of it in that way. So it really began in 2015. There was one IBMer who attended World Autism Day at the United Nations and saw what other companies were doing in this space. And IBM's always been at the forefront of a lot of these big diversity ideas and noticed that we weren't doing enough. So a business resource group, or sometimes called an ERG, was created and worked on a business case. And in 2017, we had our first hiring pilot in Lansing, Michigan. We worked with an NGO called Specialist Stern to help teach IBM what we needed to do to help neurodivergent succeed. And since then, we probably have, uh, we've had over 10,000 IBMers trained on neurodiversity acceptance in over 64 countries. I have this wonderful role where I can support my fellow neurodivergents. And we're not only focusing on hiring, but on culture change. And we could talk a little bit, dive into that. So, Nat, if, if one in 20 people have some neurodivergence in their background, right? And I, you know, as I was thinking about this, probably similar to Irv, I was doing my homework, and I was thinking, it really isn't a disability, it's really an ability, right? I mean, because that different way of thinking, just in the same way that race or creed or gender or any other characteristic of a person brings something unique and different to the table. I'm guessing that if one in 20 people are, would be broadly classified as neurodivergent, that means that, that these individuals are, are around us all the time already. Given your experience at IBM, what are some of the things that corporations or public entities would need to do to, number one, recognize that ability, and number two, to embrace it as opposed to looking at it as, as, as a difference? There's a whole gray area about whether neurodivergent traits are a disability or not, and we could probably talk for two hours on that. And it also has a CQ, a cultural intelligence aspect, because what's okay to say in one country um, is not. But the general view, and in my personal opinion, a lot of it is the environment that is what is causing that friction for that individual to succeed. I, I think some of the biases and stereotypes out there are blocking a lot of neurodivergence. I believe it was Forbes, the latest study was it was like over 40% of college educated neurodivergence are unemployed or underemployed. So possibly a PhD in accounting or IT or whatever, working at Starbucks. Why? Because they can't get through the interview because you don't smile the right way, you don't shake your hand, you don't want to talk about the weather, and you're just kind of marked as, well, weird. And sometimes weird is good. So I think it's twofold. I think companies and culture 
need to make it okay to say, I'm neurodivergent, here is what would help me succeed, instead of saying, you know, this is something to be ashamed of, or, oh, you're a woman, you can't be neurodivergent, or like, you know, all of these different biases that we have, instead of it being viewed as a special need, can we just get past ourselves and just say it's an additional need, you know, like eyeglasses, right? It's not you know, you need eyeglasses to help you succeed. You get them and you move on. Whether it's a ramp or whether it's an ADHD or that's sitting in an office building right next to the kitchenette or the elevator where there's all this noise and commotion. And with most accommodations, and I like to use success enablers, they're free, if not very inexpensive to say, can I sit someplace quieter? Or can I work from home where I can control my own sensory experience? Or can we have social contracting to know that if I'm getting overwhelmed or I'm doing this, you know, let's all work here. No different than me saying I'm a night owl, and you're an early bird, and we're going to make our meeting, you know, at 11 o'clock. So it's good for both. I see. I followed the, the 40, 40 percent. I heard it was like 55 that were underemployed. It was 40 percent unemployed and 55 percent is under and, and under and unemployed. It was a sizable number. Yeah, 40 I, I, I can try to find the reference, but it was over 40% un- and underemployed college-educated autistic adults. So how do we remove the bias in recruiting, hiring, and promotion? That's a good question. And I'm going to answer the question with another question, which I really hate when people do, but I'm going to do it to you. If I wanted to increase a diverse population, whether it be people of color, well, whether it be women, what would you do differently? And those answers are the same when you want to increase your population of neurodiversity. You have to talk about it, right? You have to build a culture that's welcoming. You have to build a place where they don't just, you know, want you to come in and be pigeonholed into a certain role, right? You want to have a plan for advancement for retention. We don't want to stay at awareness and one of our mottos at neurodiversity at IBM is awareness, acceptance, and then advancement. And those are the three stages of this journey. And no matter where you are in the journey, you have to start at that awareness phase, right? I'm aware of this. These are the correct words. This is how we're going to do it. But if you stay at awareness, that can still be discriminatory. Ah, I'm aware you're there. I just don't want to work with you or I don't want you at my company. So let's move that up to acceptance. Let's move that up to advancement of pride, of celebration. And again, a good rule of thumb is swapping out another diversity factor, right? Would we have Women's Awareness Day? I'm pretty aware that there are women around. Right, I'm, right, I'm sure. But we wouldn't do that. So if we start thinking about neurological differences, and this can include autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyscalculia, and beyond, swap out another diversity term and see if it makes sense. So exactly what you would do to try to bring in more women or more people of color is exactly what you would do to bring in more neurodivergence. You have to work on education. You have to work on culture change. If you don't, you may do a targeted hiring project and get 10 people in and then they don't want to stay. So you, you have to build those structures. You have to, before you plant the seed, right, you have to work on creating a fertile environment. And when you do that, 
your neurodivergence that are already in your university or your workplace, because it's one in 20, they can thrive as well. Yeah, I have to tell this story because it directly ties into Nat's last answer. I was at a diversity conference and uh, one of Nat's colleagues was speaking, who I know. But the last time I had visited IBM down in the RTP, some of her other colleagues were talking about their neurodiversity initiatives and the fact that a number of executives at IBM are neurodiverse, which I thought was also interesting. And so I got a little bit of a lesson there about what neurodiversity was. So at this conference, I happened to ask Nat's colleague if he would mind talking about neurodiversity at IBM. And he said, well, I don't really have to because IBM's expert in that is sitting here in the room, which I did not know. So Nat stood up and her first question to the audience, which prompted the, the reason for, for having this podcast was, how many people in here know what diversity, neurodiversity is? Now, it was a very unscientific experiment, but more than half of the individuals in the room at a diversity conference raised their hands. And so on an impromptu way, Nat got up and talked about neurodiversity in general, and of course, about neurodiversity at IBM. So I suspect, Nat, that if we were to do an actual scientific experiment across industry and start with awareness, we wouldn't get a great response, would we? I think you may get some hits on awareness. And I think you would get more if you use the word autism and not neurodiversity because I think that's a little more commonplace. There's things in like social, in, you know, media, TV, love on the spectrum on Netflix. No, I'm not, I don't get subsidized for them. But we're hearing more about that and trying to understand that autism is one flavor of how minds can work. And there are a lot of things that are co-current where you can be autistic and an ADHD or, or a dyslexic and something else. And it, really just means how you interpret the world and how you think differently. And well, that could be a good thing if you want some new ideas. And what's exciting is that there's been enough focus on neurodiversity in the workplace that now there's hard data to go with it. It's not just that warm fuzzy, it's not a pity hire. There have been studies to show neurodivergence are 92% more productive, 66% more loyal, 32% more innovation brought to the workplace workplace for almost no cost. So it's like, why aren't we doing this? Oh, and there's a skills gap too. Okay. And there's a bunch of talented people right around the corner that are excited to work, but can't get to that job fair because it's too noisy, right? We have quiet hours in toy stores for autistic kids or neurodivergent kids to pick out, you know, pick out their toys in an environment that works for them. I frequently uh, do an example. I'm also a scoutmaster, so I, I fre frequently work with a lot of kids. So I'm going to ask a question to either of you to tell me the name of a bird. Think of a bird and tell me the name of your bird. Blue jay. An eagle. Okay, great. Eagle scout. Love the tie-in. So my bird is a penguin, right? So if you're going to judge the penguin on how well it flies, not going to work. Judge a penguin on how well it moves on land awkward, but the penguin has skills of strong swimming, loyalty to come together in a storm, can raise a chick on its, balanced on its toes, and the eagle and the uh, blue jay would not do well in my environment. So it's a matter of matching skills with environment. It's being proud of who you are, 
of not calling that bird a flightless bird, but how about a bird who can swim? And thinking about these differences, not as a disorder, not as a condition, not as something that has to be treated, and for the individual, not something that should be masked or hidden. LinkedIn this past year added dyslexia as a skill that you could highlight on your profile, right? We've all been on job interviews and people might, you know, the typical question is, you know, how are you at multitasking, right? It's a common interview question. And some answers now are like, well, I'm an adhd -er, so that's my superpower. What else you got? And moving on from that, just like if somebody spoke, a, you know, spoke an additional language, that it's not hiring in spite of, it's hiring because of. Through this last 20 years of technology and in job specification, we've, we've seen a narrowing of what's required for the job role. In doing that, have we left some, have we left neurodivergence on the sidelines? And how do we, if so, how do we open that aperture back up? IBM's neurodivergent hiring program actually sits under new collar jobs, not white, not blue, but new. And uh, new collar jobs focuses on skills where there may not be a four-year degree, and that's okay. The person may have an amazing portfolio. We're looking for skills. And we also have apprenticeships and internships and really capturing these talents that might not come in through the regular door. Uh, a lot of universities, their college autism network is, is one of them, that at colleges that have neurodiversity programs come together there to share best practices and not to be a little braggy, but IBM won best workplace initiative this year. So I was very proud of that. But by interlocking with the universities earlier in the pipeline to say, we want your neurodivergent students. We want skilled people. We want students to come forward and be okay identifying. Like if we remove these stigmas and use neurodivergent friendly language and icons to change that culture, we can have people come forward and say, I'm a neurodivergent and I need extended time on my exam or I need a quiet place to, to take my test or to do my, do my interview. It's, you know, when you make things neurodivergent friendly, you make them human friendly. It's as simple as that. Now, can you share with us impetus behind your program's motto of nothing about us without us? Absolutely. So the motto, nothing about us without us, has been frequently used in communities that have underrepresentation. So if we were running a women's initiative, it would not be run by men, and it would not be run with having one token female in the room. You have to talk to people who are neurodivergent to learn what people need. You can't just read it in a book or have somebody to say, I have a PhD in psychology, and this is what you need more you know we wouldn't do that for any other any other population so ibm's program we are proudly neurodivergent run i am neurodivergent our global people with diverse abilities leader is neurodivergent uh, our executive sponsor tony horton uh, is proudly neurodivergent and we started this past april the neurodivergent out executive program so, so far, five IBM executives have come forward and been like, yep, I am neurodivergent. And the neurodivergents go across the whole, the whole job role, right? It's not only the IT professionals or like, you know, the programmer sitting in the basement coding. 
You could be a neurodivergent and be an accountant or a lawyer or in sales or an HR or be an intern or a manager or a director or an executive. That it, neurodiversity crosses all of our other diversity factors. And this past April, April is Neurodiversity Month at IBM, and our theme was cross-pollinate. Uh, IBM has a little bumblebee icon that we use, so that really was focusing on intersectionality and the layers that that can bring. Like, what's it like to be a black female neurodivergent and layers and stereotypes that people usually think. And some of, some of the icons and language that you see can be or help build unconscious bias. So you frequently see the puzzle piece, right, to represent autism. Well, that was generated by the medical profession when autism was something to be solved, a mystery, uh, something's missing, where the jigsaw puzzle piece can negatively represent, like autistics are whole people, right? Would you want to be represented by a missing piece? Or a blue p puzzle piece to highlight that only males or only little boys are autistic, or these bright colors that we see bright primary colors. Autistics are only children. No, we, we grow up and we get jobs and, you know, that community prefers the infinity symbol to more represent the infinity of differences that we can have in our brain. And a lot of things like identity first language is very important within that community. Like we say, now it is a default. So if you meet an, a neurodivergent who says, I prefer something else, you have to default to that. But in general, most neurodivergents prefer identity first language. So the person is autistic or is an autistic or is neurodivergent and not person with or has or on the spectrum. Because, and again, swap out any other diversity word. Am I a person with the uterus, right? Am I a person with white skin or am I white? We usually use that have or on or with with something negative, like person has a broken leg or a person with toe fungus. And this isn't toe fungus. This isn't something we need to get rid of. It's something that is part of our identity. We can't leave it at home like a hat, and it should be celebrated. Now, a question popped into my head. We're, we're using neuro, neurodiversity to talk about a whole collection of different capabilities. Is there any research that shows that there's a portion of the population that is neurodivergent that doesn't either doesn't recognize it or doesn't call it out? Or is there anything in that space? Because I'm often thinking about personal experiences with family and friends who, for example, later in life were identified as being ADHDers, but they've obviously been that way their whole life, but they didn't self-identify until they were later in life. Self-identifying uh, or people self-identifying is very huge, right? It's not like, oh, I think I might be Asian. Oh, you better go to the doctor and find out. Oh, you took the test. You only got a 72, so you can't be Asian or lesbian or you know whatever identity factor you thought you were. So a, a lot of it also is how and who wrote these evaluation tools. Most of the evaluation tools were written for cisgender, white, young, privileged European boys. And a lot of neurodivergent traits can come out differently based upon gender. So if your evaluation tools are biased, you're not going to get where, where you are. Or if your, your evaluator has a bias that, oh, girls can't be ADHD, they're just quiet, or they're just chatty, or they're just this, that you're not going to get that where we are. So I think it goes back to culture. It goes back to 
who is writing these tests and who gets to decide what is or is not. And again, like go back to that, you know, swap out that to any other diversity factor. Who who gets to decide if you could use the label, you know, I'm I identify as, you know, as this or or this or that. But it also hits a nerve for me that a lot of people are like, oh well, well, we're all we're all neurodivergent, and my opinion of that is no, we're not. We're not all women. And you may have, I think there's some some gray area there. Like you can be anxious, right, about a job interview or a first date, but if anxiety is part of your whole life and can affect you in different levels, then that's different than, you know, I lost my keys. Oh, I, you know, I'm an ADHD. No, but to be respectful of language of, of, of that as well. It's like things you've probably heard like high and low functioning individual. Well, who gets to decide what functioning means? Can we use high or low support needs, right? You could measure you get five hours of therapy or you have an aid or, you know, you can measure how much support somebody gives without saying how they're functioning or what their intellectual level is, right? You could have somebody who needs a lot of support who is very intelligent and they really are discrete measurements. But when you say high or low functioning, instantly there's a bias that gets set in your brain. Looking a few years out, five years out for IBM or for just the general business community, where do you see see neurodiversity taking taking place? Where do you see it changing, improving? Where where do we go? Well, let's let's push it out ten years because I don't want to retire just yet. But my long term goal is that we don't need a neuro a special neurodiversity program where it's just part of a culture that's been understanding, you know, that we've put in. And we've, we've removed moved the bias and blockers that everybody can succeed, you know, at their job where you can just go through and say, hey, listen, can we not eat or not, can we not wear strong perfumes in the office? Or can we not, you know, like having social contracts, being understanding and goes back to making us all more human. So hopefully we won't need these things, but if you think of, you know, how much work has been done from, you know, the people of color or the LGBT community, there's still going to be work to be done. And that's why I like to think of neurodiversity as the next chapter in that story. Again, thanking the audience for listening to the, uh, to the podcast. And of course, thanking you for joining us here today and explaining the amazing work that you've done over the last seven years and your whole life to get neurodiversity to the top of the list at IBM. Where can people or where should people go to learn more about the work that you're doing and about the work that they should be doing to improve uh, acceptance of neurodiversity. There's an organization called Disability In, and under that uh, organization, there's something called the Neurodiversity Employers Roundtable. And that's where companies like IBM, Dell, EY, SAP, Microsoft, are all coming together to work for a common goal in this mission. And yeah, there are a lot of competitors uh, in that space, but we're letting our guard down because we know there's so much work um, to be done. And there's also companies like Rising Tide Car Wash and other companies that are like running coffee shops. So really to ensure that there is uh, gainful employment for neurodivergence in all different, you know, all different skills. And I can send you that website. There's actually a playbook on that website to how to start your own. Uh, neurodiversity playbook. 
And for the neurodiversity at IBM, we have a YouTube playlist where you can hear lots of storytelling. Uh, we have a great one recently published by one of our neurodivergent executives talking about his journey with substance abuse and depression until he was recognized as neurodivergent. And I myself was recognized as neurodivergent in college. So until then, it was like, oh, I'm not broken. This is kind of cool. It's like learning that you were left-handed and why you've been struggling your whole life. And again, that's another language. Instead of using diagnosed, we use recognize. All of these different things to make it not be a medical deficit. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely include those links when we put this out on our platform and in our social media so that people can... Yeah, we were, our, our DND program was also Forbes in August, so I could send you that link as well. And back to back to the first part of that question, how can we learn more about the amazing work that you're doing at IBM? I have a link that I can send out to you. It's unfortunately not short, so I'll... Uh, it's okay. But our, our neurodiversity program sits under our People with Diverse Abilities group, and uh, IBM uses diverse abilities to be culturally aware because the word disability does mean and triggers different feelings in, in other countries. It's not because disability is a, is, is a bad word or something that shouldn't be done, but due to the cultural aspect and to be mindful of those, we use diverse abilities for that community, and we have uh, a lot of resources sources out there. And if you're looking for a job at IBM, we do not bring sense. So every job at IBM is open to neurodivergence. Uh, we're looking for skill, and hopefully you know, individuals feel safe and comfortable enough to say what they need to succeed. I love the phraseology. It's very uplifting. Yeah, this has been very, very good and excellent podcast. I learned a ton today. So uh, Natalia Lakowski from IBM, we really appreciate your time today and sharing it, your experience and around neurodiversity. Thank you so much. You bet. Let's keep the conversation going. You bet, Nat. Thanks for joining us today. Hopefully you get a little bit of a break over the holiday season, whatever you might end up doing, but it's a pleasure of meeting you in person, having you here today with Irv and I, and on behalf of the Smeal College of Business, Penn State University, and the Center for Supply Chain Research, and our, our, our worldwide audience, we really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash CSCR.